This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod. I'm Eric Eddings. And I am Brittany Luce. So, y'all, a lot of times you don't really hear stories about Africa that are nuanced and complex. Stories that try to look at colonialism and the things that happen after from the eyes of the people that live through it. But recently, I heard one story that did just that. It takes a story that you might have heard and just turns it on its head. It's about the first all-black team to compete in the World Cup, the 1974 Zaire team. It's now known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Back then, they made one of the strangest plays ever seen at the World Cup. And this story explores the hidden history behind that moment. Okay, so to set the scene, we're at the 1974 World Cup, and Zaire is playing Brazil, and Brazil is given a free kick. No one is supposed to kick the ball except Brazil. But then, out of nowhere, this player from Zaire, this guy called Mwepu Ilunga, sprints towards the ball and kicks it way down the field. And everyone watching is just, like, shocked and confused. Like, it's a super basic rule of soccer that during a free kick, you don't do anything until the other team has kicked the ball. Like, even seven-year-olds playing soccer know this stuff. So no one could understand why Ilunga did this. And everyone made fun of the team for it. So why did he kick the ball? The answer is so much wilder than you could ever imagine. And to be honest, I wish we could say we reported it. Like, (laughs) it's actually an episode from a show new to Gimlet Media called We Came to Win. The show tells the stories behind the World Cup's most iconic moments. And this one episode we just loved so much, we had to share it with y'all. Soccer journalist Nando Vila hosts the show, and you'll hear him at the end of the episode. But the voice that you're going to hear reporting this story is actually a friend of The Nod, producer Gofen Mputubwele. So we're going to let Gofen take it away. Ilunga broke a basic rule of soccer, one that you learned playing in elementary school, and nobody knew why. But this is how the famed English commentator John Motson described it. Amid the tension, there was a bizarre moment of African innocence. Ah, a moment of African innocence. Years later, he would explain that it seemed the team had a bit to learn about the rules. And this idea stuck. It's been repeated on soccer comedy shows. During the 1974 finals, Zaire were labeled the clowns of football. 
sports news segments and World Cup blooper reels around the world for decades. But this explanation for the kick makes no sense. Here's why. Our team was the best in Africa. That's Mazemba Nzwanga. Nzwanga and my dad have been friends since college, so I've known him my whole life. Hi, how are you? Is I'm your friend? Yep, yep. <laughs> like my parents, Mazemba's from Zaire, now called the Democratic Republic of Congo. And like you said, Zaire was the best team in Africa in 74. Continental champions. They knew how to play soccer. So why did Ilunga break such a basic rule and kick the ball away? I started wondering about this six months ago. And the more I learned about the team, the more I realized this kick wasn't some one-dimensional story about African innocence. Turns out, wrapped up in Mwepu Ilunga's free kick is a story of nationhood, colonialism, government corruption, and how 22 men were meant to redefine the heart of a continent. My name is Ngofen Putubwele, and you're listening to We Came to Win. To really understand the free kick, I had to go back. All the way back to when soccer frenzy took over the Congo, thanks to a talented group of players and the dictator who made them a team. It's June 30th, 1966, Independence Day, and we're in Leopoldville, now known as Kinshasa, capital city of the Congo. It's been six years since the Congo liberated itself from Belgian rule, and the country's at a fragile moment. Its first prime minister, the beloved Patrice Lumumba, has been assassinated, sections of the country are in open armed rebellion, and control of the government has been seized by a military general, Joseph Mobutu, who staged a military coup. But Mobutu's power is still uncertain. Not everyone trusts their new leader, who came to power through backstabbing, manipulation, and CIA support. Mobutu needs to bring the country together. And to do that, he has the perfect occasion in mind. VIPs of the Congolese Republic were in their best bib and tucker. It was Independence Day, and an honored place was given to those who had helped General Mobutu on his way to the presidency. Mobutu's plan to bring the country together started at the soccer stadium. In one of his first acts as president, Mobutu decides he's going to adopt the Congolese national soccer team. In other words, make it his mission for the team to become extraordinary. It's not exactly the first thing you'd expect to see on the presidential to-do list, but the strategy was actually pretty popular at the time, for leaders of Africa's newly independent young nations. The idea was build a strong soccer team, align yourself with the team, and unify the country at the stadium. And that's exactly what Mobutu was doing on that Independence Day. And it seemed to be working. Here's Manzo Lamangale, one of Congo's most well-known sports journalists. You see, everyone feels really revolutionary. And we think that we are the greatest country in the world. That's the atmosphere that we're in at the stadium. 
Mobutu's organized a game where Congo's national team, the Lions, will play the Ghanaian Black Stars, the best team on the continent. The game is the centerpiece of the Independence Day celebration and takes place in the heart of Kinshasa, at the city's largest soccer stadium. There's at least 70,000 people there to watch the game. The fans are yelling and cheering. Everyone seems caught up in the hype of the competition. And up in the stands, presiding over it all, is President Mobutu. This is his moment to show off his team. But it does not go as planned. Here's Lamangale, our sports journalist. He watched the game from up in the stands. And in that match, the Black Stars completely dominated our national team. And they didn't just dominate them. They made us look ridiculous. The Black Stars were dribbling circles around the Lions, and the Lions couldn't keep up. Here's Mokili Sayo, one of the Congolese players who was on the field that day. In that game, they were beating us 3-0. And one player named Kofi is dribbling the ball, and when he gets in front of the boxes, he stops the ball. He stands on the ball and then he salutes the president in the middle of the game. Now, when Sayo says the Ghanaian players saluted the president in the middle of the game, he doesn't mean out of respect. Standing on the ball mid-game is like a basketball player spitting the ball on their finger mid-play. It screams, this is so easy that I can do whatever I want. And that shocked the president. It wasn't just shocking, it was humiliating. You see, despite having Mobutu behind them, the Lions had one key flaw. At this point, no one on the Lions actually played soccer for a living. They were amateurs. And Mobutu's whole campaign to rally the country behind an amazing team couldn't work unless the team was amazing. So he poured money into Congolese soccer, improving training methods, and he also hired a world-class coach. And then Mobutu did something really drastic, something that would ultimately change the course of Congolese soccer history. He recalled Congolese soccer players who were playing abroad. You see, there were really good professional soccer players from Congo who played full-time, but they were in Belgium on pro teams that were much more competitive. So Mobutu issued this presidential decree that says, look, if you're a Congolese soccer player playing in one of the elite European leagues, you need to come home right now and play for your country. I asked Lamangale, our sports journalist, what he had thought of that decision at the time. All of us were in favor of it because these were players that had developed in Congo before that had been transferred. And everyone knew them and followed their gameplay in Belgium. And when it came to the national team, everyone was united. Everyone was swept up in it. And you too, were you swept up in everything that was going on? Well, I was Congolese. I am. I still am. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't just the fans. Those players who were abroad, nearly all of them were willing to come home. They left their European club teams, boarded planes, and came back to Kinshasa. Why? Well, for one, Mobutu offered to buy out their contracts. They were also promised jobs in the government. But more fundamental was something else that was pulling them back. A sense of patriotism. (laughs) 
Despite the unrest that persisted throughout the young nation, people shared an immense hope in Congo's future. It was the first decade of independence from Belgium. And when it comes to colonial rule, Belgium was especially brutal. As many as 10 million Congolese people were murdered, women systematically raped, and the entire Belgian colonial system existed to brand the Congolese as inferior. There was a sense that now, despite the setbacks, the best years for Congo and the Congolese people lay ahead. And Kinshasa embodied everything that Congo was and everything that Congo could be. Talk to any Congolese person who lived around that time, and you can hear it in their voices. It was a beautiful city. Uh, it was the safest place to be in the world. I liked Kinshasa of those days. That's my family friend, Mazemba. To hear him talk about it, I wish I could have seen it for myself. When the expat players returned to Kinshasa, it took a little bit for this new national team to find its footing. But bit by bit, the team started improving. And for the next two years, Mobutu went on a campaign to make them unstoppable. First, he remade the team in his image. As president, Mobutu always wore this iconic leopard hat cocked to the side. And so he renamed the team from the Lions to the Leopards, or the Leopards in French. Second, Mobutu sent the Leopards to month-long training camps overseas to practice with some of the best teams in the world. They also played friendlies in Kinshasa against all-star teams, like Brazil's FC Santos and their star player, Pele. Yep, that Pele. After the break, Mobutu's Leopards find success on the soccer field. But learn, it comes at a price. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. By 1968, it seems like Mobutu's little soccer experiment has worked. His leopards are good. But it's not until they enter the African Cup of Nations, the continent's highest soccer competition, that people find out just how good the leopards have become. Immediately, they go on a run, advancing through the tournament. The team makes it all the way to the competition final, to take place in Ethiopia. And there, they square off against their old nemesis, the Black Stars of Ghana. The afternoon of the game was clear and bright. The stadium full of spectators and dignitaries, and the Leopards ready to show off their skill to the whole continent. Back home in Congo, soccer fever had gripped the country. Life stopped, classes were canceled, and everyone was glued to their radios. Here's my family friend Mazemba again, who was a student at the time. 
So they told us, oh, okay, um, no class, you go take the radio and go listen. Mazemba gathered with his classmates in his school cafeteria. And was it, was the room silent as people were listening? No, 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 no. no. It was noisy, especially when they scored, whoa, everybody would, would shout. Kasongo sur la balle. Centre de Kasongo. Cal à la contrôle. Tire. Et c'est le but. But donc. Résolu but de Kalala. Inscrit. Vive Léopard. The Leopards dethroned the Black Stars that day, winning 1-0. Back in Congo, it was absolute pandemonium, and a massive parade was organized to welcome the team home. The parade started at the airport. It was a big day, a big day the day we came back. At the airport, the players get off the plane carrying the African Cup trophy, and everyone's dressed the same, Gray and blue shorts and jerseys with one key accessory to make it all pop. You know the talks? The hat the president wears. The leopard hat. They gave them to us already in Ethiopia. From there, two by two, the players get into open-top military jeeps. The jeeps roll throughout the city through crowds of fans dancing, singing, and waving laurel leaves. I mean, people really came to welcome us. All along our way there and back, there were lots of people just clapping for us because people knew that we were going to arrive that day. I asked Mokili Sayo what it was like to be 23 years old and see the entire nation outside cheering for him, celebrating his successes. It's an enormous joy. An enormous joy. You've just, you're just ecstatic. You're just ecstatic. Everyone dancing and singing in the streets, they weren't just celebrating the team. They were celebrating Congo. And the person who'd helped the team become what it was, was Mobutu. After winding their way through the city, the team's invited to the president's estate. There, they hand him the African Cup of Nations trophy. Three years pass after the African Cup victory, and by now, Mobutu is without question in charge. It's 1971, and now that Mobutu's brought political stability, he's in the midst of a campaign to create national pride. And in that vein, he changes the name of the country, from Congo to Zaire, He changes the name of cities, from Western ones to Congolese ones. And finally, he requires people to change their own names. Here's Chimenu Bwanga, one of the leopards. In other words, everyone who's named either Robert, Matthew, Jean, Jack, Mamutu as president, he decided to get rid of all those names. Bwanga's original name was Raymond, Raymond. Even Raymond went out with that wave. I just want to take a moment and highlight Mobutu's name transformation, we'll call it. He changed his name from Joseph Desiré Mobutu to Mobutu Seseseko Nkukungwendu Wazabanga, which translates roughly to the all-powerful warrior who goes from victory to victory, leaving fire in his wake. But we're just going to call him Mobutu. 
As you might guess from Mobutu's new name, he was becoming drunk on power, and his policies were starting to reflect this. He began by banning opposing political parties. He created a vast secret police. He appointed personal cronies to run the government. Eventually, he consolidated his power so much that public money became his own personal piggy bank. He and his cronies spent the nation's money how they wanted, when they wanted, because this was Mobutu's country. And naturally, this wasn't helping Congo flourish. By 1973, the economy was starting to tank and unemployment was on the rise. Which brings us back to the leopards, Mobutu's leopard. They were helping to distract from these problems. Here's player Maku Mayanga. We amused the Congolese population. Life wasn't rosy for everyone. But when the leopard won, the whole country was in euphoria. They forgot their problems, they forgot their miseries. All they thought were, the leopard, the leopard, the leopard, the leopard. So Mobutu had to bet on that. He had to bet on us. So for Mobutu, it was propaganda. It was propaganda. From Mobutu's perspective, the leopard's success made the country greater. And by extension, they made him greater. So he upped his investment, hoping to make the team even better. He hired a new coach, Blagoja Vidinich, who'd helped Morocco get to the World Cup for the first time in 1970. But what Mobutu didn't do is look out for his players. First off, despite playing for what had become a hugely successful national team, none of the players received salaries. They were just paid completely ad hoc. $20 here, $20 there. There was no rule. That's Bwanga again. The Leopards couldn't earn a living just from soccer, but they weren't exactly in a position to complain. So to make ends meet, lots of players like Bwanga got side hustles in stores and other businesses. There was nothing. There's nothing planned for. If you play your soccer, you leave. And tomorrow if you get five francs, you take those five francs and you put it in your pocket. And on top of all this, the players weren't allowed to leave to play for elite European teams or compete in European games. They were barred from playing outside Congo without government authorization, even when really good teams came knocking. Mayanga was a star striker on the team. One day after a game, he remembers a recruiter from the top-tier French club team, Saint-Étienne, approaching him and his teammate, Kakoko. The manager came to the hotel after the match. We went down and shook the manager's hand and he said, Hello, Mr. Mayanga, Mr. Kakoko. I came to see you for a little discussion. The recruiters wanted Mayanga and Kakoko on their team, and they were ready to negotiate. Mayanga said they'd even pay to fly the players back to Zaire whenever Mobutu wanted them to play in a friendly. But Mobutu wouldn't have it. President Mobutu refused completely. He said, no, my players will stay here. Like all professional athletes, soccer players have a short window before they're out of their prime. Leopard player Mokili Sayo knew this all too well. After years of Mobutu shutting out foreign recruiters, by the early 70s, his best years were behind him. He was never able to play outside of Congo. I asked him how he felt toward Mobutu. Honestly, I just felt hatred. 
I felt the contempt because he made me miss out on a career. I still hate him. The player's best hope for making a name for themselves was through the Leopards. And in 1974, it seemed they might have their moment. The World Cup. World Cups meant FIFA bonuses. FIFA awarded $750,000 to any team that qualified for World Cup 74. That's about $4 million today, to be split among players and staff. Our coach told us, that whoever's name is on the roster, if the team qualifies for the World Cup, your life is assured. So everyone heard it. Assurance. The players started doing the math in their heads and realized they might get $20,000 per person. That's about 100000 bucks today per player. For players who were used to getting 20 bucks here or 30 bucks there, this was an absurd amount of money. And of course, there was the idea of playing in the World Cup, a dream for these players, and being the first Black African team to do it. For over a year, they trained hard, and the work showed during their World Cup qualifying campaign. As the Leopards beat team after team after team, until finally, in December 1973, the Leopards have done it. They qualify for the World Cup. Nineteen seventy-four was going to be their year. When we come back, we answer the question that's puzzled soccer fans for forty years: Why did Mwepuilunga kick the ball? Good evening. Well, tomorrow, as if you didn't know, is the start of the 1974 World Cup. And here in Britain, our hopes... In June 1974, Zaire heads to the World Cup, hosted that year in West Germany. And it was a big deal across Africa. The excitement and anticipation was palpable. While excitement ran high on the continent, the rest of the world was skeptical of this first-time qualifier. Few people outside Africa had seen them play. Back then, most African soccer tournaments weren't internationally televised. First then, Zaire. Formerly, they were the Belgian Congo. The bookmakers make them a 200-to-1 shot. Does anybody here think that they're going to do it? I mean, do you see a Zaire or a Haiti or an Australia doing anything? Derek has, has whetted our appetite for we, it. We don't know. We haven't seen any of them. In the group stage, the team would play three games. The first was against Scotland. And while they're feeling all the excitement and anticipation of their country, they also have this other thing on their mind they'll finally get paid for their hard work. Here's Bwanga and Mayanga. So we went there with our heads full of plans. Certain players were banking on this money. They were saying, I can change careers. I can maybe go into business. Oh, yes, we talked about that. When I get the money, I'm going to do this. When I get the money, I'm going to do that. No one tells them exactly when they're getting paid. All they know is it's supposed to be before the first match, against Scotland. But that day arrives, and the money hasn't shown up. And something seems a bit off. Here's Mayanga again. 
Quand on est arrivé, hein, au... Now, when we arrived, we asked the captain to see the guy to give us the money before the match. Kidum went and the guy said, hey, no problem, I've got your money here. Play the first match and then we'll give you the money. So they say, fine. They try to push the thoughts about money out of their heads and focus. They were about to play in the World Cup. This is what they'd worked for, and everyone was watching. Here's Bwanga. I was in the locker room. The ref blew the whistle, we went outside, we stepped onto that field, and the most encouraged were us. I knew that I was going to play. My head was in the game. On screen, everyone looks fresh, ready to rep Zaire. And actually, right behind them, just next to the halfway line, there's a giant sideline ad underscoring that message. A Zairean flag with the words, go to Zaire, emblazoned in white. And it will be light yellow jersey of Zaire, green shorts, the leopard of Zaire kicking off, tapping the goal on your left. When the dust settles, the final score is 2-0 Scotland. But even though Zaire lost, they put up an impressive fight, and they'd proven that they could compete at this level. After the game, the players head to their hotel, and the government official who's supposed to deliver their money never shows. The next day, no word. Three days pass as they await the next game to be played against Yugoslavia and they hear nothing about the money. As each day passed, they couldn't shake the feeling that there might never be any money. They might have been swindled. It all comes to a head the night before the game when the players are getting ready for bed. One player had had enough. Here's Buanga. There's a guy on the team named uh, Jean Kembo who says no. Are you guys asleep? When are we going to get paid? He started going into players' rooms, insisting that we meet, saying this money has got to show up. And the feeling quickly spread. Here's Mayanga. It was total chaos. Certain players were angry. We started arguing and we were calling each other on the phone. Come, we're going to meet. We were looking at the time. It was almost midnight. We should have been in bed, but we were there awake, waiting, discussing it all. The players come out of their rooms. They start to huddle in small groups in the hotel hallway, and they start arguing about whether they should go right then and confront the government official who'd promised to pay them days earlier. But they keep going back and forth and can't agree on what to do. Here's Mayanga. And then we said, come on, it's late. He's a minister. We can't go disturb him like this. He knows good and well that he owes us money. He owes us money before the game. How is it that he hasn't shown up? Eventually, they decide it'll keep till morning and they go to sleep. They woke up to bad news. Here's Mayanga. He went to bed. The next morning, I think, he went to the airport very early in the morning, without even telling us. He left. He left. 
We never saw him again. He went with the money, and that's it. The team is completely crushed. When I went back and watched their game against Yugoslavia that night, you could see it in their faces. Not surprisingly, Zaire loses. But the final score is bad. Really bad. Yugoslavia 9-0. Here's Mayanga. The players all lost the motivation. I'm not saying we would have won, but I don't think we would have lost 9-0. At the time, it was the worst loss in World Cup history, tied only to the 1954 match between Hungary and South Korea, also 9-0. It was humiliating. Here's Bonga. The problem got even worse at that point. You've lost by nine points now. How are you going to argue about money that you're owed? Four days pass, and the Leopards stagger into their final game against Brazil, the reigning World Cup champions. The game capped off a week in which they'd been lied to, cheated, and finally embarrassed on an international stage. By the 80th minute, Brazil has scored three goals. In Zaire, zero. At the 84th minute, a Brazilian player is fouled, and the ref calls for a free kick. This is the free kick that Zaire will become famous for. Zaire's defenders line up and form a wall. The ref sets up the ball and blows the whistle. Here's Mayanga. So then, I saw Mwipu leaving the wall. And then he cleared the ball. Well, what on earth did he do that for? That was completely unnecessary. After the kick, Ilunga takes a deep bow. And Moepu might think himself lucky not to have been sent off. I couldn't find any record of Ilunga talking about the kick right after the game. No post-game interviews, no newspaper quotes. For a long time, people could only speculate. In fact, it wasn't until the late 90s, after Mobutu's deposed as president and Zaire's return back to being called Congo, that interviews with Ilunga started to pop up. But even then, the explanations were all over the map. Sometimes the kicks called a time-wasting move, other times a protest. But then, in this one interview Ilunga gave to the BBC in 2002, Ilunga's quoted as saying that Mobutu's presidential guards threatened the team. That after losing the first two games, if they lost to Brazil by more than three goals, there'd be consequences. And so many have said that when Ilunga kicked the ball, he did it out of fear. This is the explanation that's ultimately stuck with people. Whenever journalists mention the kick now, they invariably reference this shadowy threat from Mobutu. And it makes sense, because looking back, there's no question that Mobutu was a brutal dictator. 32 years in office, public hangings, jailing political opponents, crushing protests. But none of Ilunga's teammates that I talked to remember any threats. They said they still have no idea why he kicked the ball. Ilunga passed away in 2015, and with him seemed to go any chance of answering this question. This is a picture uh, in the World Cup. That's in 1974. But then I found Ilunga's son, Dominique. Dominique lives in London. His home is decorated with pictures of his dad. Ilunga with his teammates, Ilunga at the Africa Cup, Ilunga on the cover of a sports journal, commemorating his life. 
Dominique says his dad always harped on the importance of education. He said it was reliable because you never know what will happen in life. Did he talk about the World Cup much or even um, what it was like when he came back? Yes, that was his favorite subject, you know, talking about the uh, football. Oh, really? The World Cup. Yes, the World Cup, the play at the African Cup. When I asked Dominique about the threats, he said, sure, there were threats, but nothing that specific. You know, they're not telling you directly that, you know, don't come back. The way they put in those words is good enough for you to understand that something bad might happen to you when you, when you, when you don't do what they, they're asking you to do. Yeah, I, I understand it that way. Honestly, I don't know what to make of the alleged threats if no one else can verify them. But ultimately, it doesn't even matter because Dominique says that's not why his dad kicked the ball. Dominique said his dad's story was always the same. When he and his teammates realized what had happened, that they'd been lied to and cheated, he'd finally had enough. After years of letting Mobutu profit off his playing, of unwittingly serving as this national propaganda tool, he decided no more. It was there, standing on the field, preparing to defend against Brazil's free kick, that he knew what he had to do. If a Zairean victory would ultimately be the pride of Mobutu, a Zairean failure would be Mobutu's too. It was like a sabotage. So you, you like you use the word sabotage. Like, is that you think towards whom? Well, the government, of course. Think back to that parade after the Africa Cup in 1968. Remember where all the celebration ended? At the president's house. If they won the World Cup, it would have been the same. When they go back, if they won the cup, they would go and see the president of the country and hand the cup to him. Mm-hmm. If Mobutu was going to bask in their glory, he'd also have to share in their shame. And this, this is why Ilunga broke from the line and kicked that ball down the field. After they were knocked out of the World Cup in 1974, the team returned to Zaire. Mayanga says that rather than parades or presidential jeeps, they were welcomed to Kinshasa by a public radio announcement. Tout le jour de all the players for the Leopard are requested to come to Quartier General. The bus will be there to take you to Mongaliema. Mongaliema is the president's estate. So every hour they repeated this. So it kind of scared us. I said, what's going on? This message was disturbing enough that one player I spoke to chose to skip the meeting and instead go into hiding. But the rest of the team gathered together to face the music. We got on the bus and went to Mongaliema, and we were received by the president, a bit vexed. At Mongaliema, the players are brought into a room where they're standing up with Mobutu's bodyguards behind them. And Mobutu seated on a chair, scepter-like cane in hand. You know what he told us? He said, listen, I called you here, listen. Certain players want to be mercenaries. He didn't say the names, but we knew that he meant us, especially me and Kakogo. Certain players want to act as mercenaries here in my house. Because 
he would say that the country was his house. But not in my house. No one will leave to go play abroad. No one. Mayanga and Kakoko, you might remember, had been recruited two years earlier by the French club team. You will play here, and you will finish your careers here. With his cane, he tapped. No one can go play abroad as long as I'm alive. With that, Mobutu pulled his support for the national team. There'd be no more president-sponsored training, no more parades, and that was that. Of the 22 players who went to the World Cup, several managed to find some other way out of Zaire. Some through work, others through school or coaching. Sayo and Buanga, former Raymond, are in Paris. Mayanga lives near Brussels. Mobutu was overthrown in 1997 and fled the nation, dying a few months later of prostate cancer. And as for the leopards, well, they're still around, but they've never come close to matching the accomplishments of what that team did in the 60s and 70s. They haven't won an Africa Cup, and since 1974, they haven't yet qualified for another World Cup. Over the years, the story of this kick keeps changing. At first, it was a comedy of errors, about Africans who didn't know the most basic rules of soccer. Then, it turned into a tragedy, about an African despot oppressing his people. And for a long time, that's all I thought this story would be. But if there's one thing my parents taught me about Congo, it's that you never stop at tragedy. When your history is so marked by trauma, you always keep moving. Literally, even when people pass away in Congo, you sing and you dance. That's the fundamental tension of being Congolese. And I think the free kick embodies that tension perfectly. Dominique said that despite being cheated there, his dad loved to talk about the World Cup. And I think it's because Mwepwi Lunga knew the real story, that he was part of an elite team of African athletes that felt trapped, but still was defiant enough to make sure that a corrupt dictator's regime wouldn't get the final word. And to play us out, here's leopard player Mokili Sayo, who wasn't just a great soccer player, but also a pretty good singer. Our center forward for this story is producer Gofan Mputubwele. Your voice led the line with strength and truth. On the wings are producers Emma Morgenstern and Emily Ulbricht. And our super subs are Anna Foley and Jasmine Romero. Our captain is senior producer Matthew Nelson. Our coaches are editors Caitlin Kenny, Devin Taylor, and Jessica Weisberg. Our fact checker is Max Gibson. The music you heard throughout was thanks to our brilliant Congolese percussionist and guitarist Nkumu Katalayi. Additional music, sound design, and mixing by Bobby Lord. Our voice actors were Alan Lukaka, Jean-Pierre Makoso, Cosimo Seni, and Owino Sangewa. 
Special thanks to Kalala Ntumba, Harold Okere, Makimun Mumputubwele, and Zeke Botokuma, whose book, Global Safari, Checking In and Checking Out in Pursuit of World Wisdoms, the American Dream, and Cosmo Citizenship, describes his memories of watching the 1974 World Cup in Zaire. Next week, we tell the story of Diego Maradona, a player who didn't just play for himself, he played for the honor of his country. And I think you can see in that lineup before the England game that he's out to um, to avenge himself, uh, his country, the boys who died in the war, knock the empire and play against the queen. We Came to Win is a production of Gimlet Media in association with Fusion. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. For photos and bonus content, follow Gimlet Media on Twitter. The handle is at Gimlet Media. We'd love to know your thoughts on the show, so tweet at us using the hashtag WeCameToWin. If you enjoyed this episode of We Came To Win, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.